Uh, I am the lead pastor here, and I welcome you here in the name of Jesus Christ who died for your sins, who paid everything, so that when you walk through that door, no matter who you are, uh, you are chosen and loved by him if you have received him by faith. So welcome. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue our series in Revelation. Father, we want to thank you for the songs that we have sung. These are songs of our deliverance, and we, we thank you that we get to sing them with brothers and sisters who, like us, were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were in darkness, and you, you gave us life. But now, God, who is rich in mercy, granted us life and light. Thank you for dispelling the darkness, and thank you for giving us songs that we can sing to you about this, this great love. Father, I pray that you convince our hearts of this love as we come in from the past week. Um, our hearts are all over the place. Our, our minds are uh, confused, and maybe we have some sort of suffering or prolonged suffering that we've had to deal with. And so we, we come in hope, just asking you, to convince us that you love us, that you love us. Remind us through the cross of Jesus Christ that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not nakedness, not famine, not peril, not the sword, not even our own sin can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. If since... You have given, freely given your own son. How will you not also with him freely give us all things? So we're asking for you to be with us in our suffering and our persecution to see us through to the end. We pray that you would reveal to us more knowledge of yourself, oh God. Help us to know that you are eternal, you are the one who was first and last. You are the first and the last. You, you, you were dead. You died and came back to life again. You hold the keys of death and hell in your hand. And I pray against the evil one that would distract our minds away from him. And Father, as you called us to a life of tribulation and, and suffering when we follow, you said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You said, through many persecutions, through many tribulations and afflictions, will we enter the kingdom of God. So in this life that you called us to, we pray that you would remind us that you entered into this life and that you know us, that you're intimately knowing us, that you are a high priest who is touched with our infirmities, that you are a high priest who knows everything about us and what it's like to be human and, and what it's like to be weak in our prayers and, and have groanings and, and trials and not be able to form the right words. You know what it's like. And I pray that you convince us that you've called us to suffer and you'll sustain us in our suffering. God, for those of us who um, don't, don't know um, what to do in our, our suffering. I pray that you'd help us to look to you. I pray that you would help us to stand in solidarity with those who do suffer. We pray 
For those dear brothers and sisters who live in the Hindu world who are Christians and are persecuted for their, for their following of Jesus, I pray that you would sustain them and strengthen them to not be afraid, but to be faithful to the end, knowing that they will get the crown of life and that the second death will not touch them because Jesus has overcome the world. I pray for those in, in India and in Asia who, who do suffer under persecution, that you would help them to be strong unto death, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that the suffering only lasts for a while. Mourning, grief endures through the night, but your good love lasts forever. So I pray that you'd help them. Help us to stand in solidarity with them. Help us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. God, and we pray for our own country. We ask, we pray for our government. You have told us, you have commanded us to, to pray for kings and governors, and, and we want to pray for our, our president and vice president, and we ask that you would help them to govern in a way that's good for your people, in a way that's good for all of your creation, all of those made in your image. Well, we pray for um, the word of Christ to have precedence in our land. God, we ask that uh, you would help our, our governor to, to govern in, in righteousness and equity and justice um, so that we might live peaceable lives. God, and, and we do think of ourselves. We ask that you would meet with us even as we open your word this morning. Take away distractions that would, that would be like the birds of the air that take away the seed of the word of God. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, here at the branch as it is in heaven. And we pray that you'd lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. That yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our king. Amen. Um, Bridget and I... Uh, just got back from vacation. We were uh, in Oklahoma for a week at a wedding and then in Mexico for five days celebrating our 25-year anniversary. So to come back and to talk about the church of Smyrna, who is going through persecution, just feels like I, I don't really know what that looks like uh, because I, I've, I've been enjoying life, uh, especially 80-degree days uh, the last uh, couple weeks. And so I just, it got me to thinking, like, how do you talk about persecution to a church that doesn't really suffer persecution? I mean, maybe we have some small sufferings, and maybe you experience some persecution and, and suffering uh, for being a Christian, but how do I talk, how do we talk about persecution and suffering when we don't really experience a lot of it? How do I, as a pastor, like I just said, talk about it when I haven't really experienced it? Um... But I think suffering, as, as I alluded to in my prayer, uh, is a normal part of the Christian life. 
Uh, most of us think because we live in America and we, we, don't, we don't really uh, experience a lot of suffering or persecution here, that it's, that's normal, and the people that suffer persecution live abnormal Christian lives. It's actually the opposite. So, so when people go through suffering in, in China and persecution for becoming Christians, that's actually the normal, that's normally what happens in the Christian life. It's abnormal not to, to suffer persecution. Um, with hundreds or and thousands of people who lose their property for following Jesus, and I can already feel you bristling at what I'm saying, because I feel it in my own heart too. Like, really? Should I go looking for suffering and persecution? That, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying we should thank God for where we live, we should enjoy where we live, but what we should realize is Jesus calls us to a life of suffering. And suffering is the normal part of a Christian life. It's not abnormal. So if you go through suffering or persecution, you shouldn't think that anything is necessarily wrong. You, you, you shouldn't think that God is mad at you. They killed his son, who did everything perfectly. And, he, and his son said, in this world you will have tribulation. You know, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus talks about what the kingdom looks like, he says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so persecuted they God's own son. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but don't be afraid. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome death. So my argument this morning, I think from the text, is that suffering, persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. So when, when trials come, God, Christ, wants us to be fearless and faithful. And I'm getting that from the text in, in Revelation. He, he tells them, Church of Smyrna, not to, not to fear, but to be faithful. And I hope to, to show us that, to be fearless and faithful. So when I say be fearless, what do I mean? I just want to get this right, because all of us get afraid at times, right? Well, what does it mean to be fearless? Do not fear, he tells the church of Smyrna. And it, it doesn't mean to never experience being afraid. It doesn't mean to never experience fear or have that, that you know, feeling in the pit of your stomach. It, what it does mean is to do what is right in spite of fear. In the, in the face of fear, you, you do what you know is right. It is, it is looking to Jesus, trusting in him in spite of how you feel. So that's what I mean, fearless and faithful. So hear these words to the church of Smyrna. Hear these words to the church in Corvallis. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation 
and your poverty. But you are rich. And I, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. So the church in Smyrna, Smyrna was located in modern-day Turkey on the Aegean Sea in a, in a town now called Izmir. It was, it was a beautiful, bustling port city with a connection to Ephesus. It, it was rich with a population over 100,000 people, and Smyrna was connected to Rome with great patriotism. And they were heavily involved in what was called Caesar or emperor worship. And it had recently become a law that all citizens had to worship Caesar by taking a little incense and burning it, probably to a, a man named Domitian, and saying, Caesar is Lord. Three little words. Caesar is Lord. Burn the incense. That's all you have to do. But this was a problem for Christians, because Christians, for Christians, Jesus is Lord. That was the first creed ever written. Jesus is Lord. He's the only Lord. He's the only king. And while we have governors and kings that we submit to, he is the only Lord of our life. To call anyone else Lord was idolatry. So Christians were accused of being atheists in Rome. They were they were accused of tearing down the gods of Rome. They were, they were atheists. They wouldn't call the gods of Rome gods. They're accused of being insurrectionists and anti-patriotic. They were considered a danger to society for upsetting its peace. And for all this, for, for all of this, for not giving in to the state religion. So in order to enter into this story, you know, seeing how distant it is from us. Like, we don't really live in that, that world. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to imagine yourself sitting in the church of Smyrna, probably a house. You're probably sitting on the floor, and there's just, a, there's just some people there, just regular people. I want you to imagine yourself a citizen of Smyrna and a member of the church of Smyrna. And your elders have taught you this very creed, Jesus is Lord. But your union rep the, the local, of the local blacksmith's guild is telling you, if you want to work this week, you have to go to the temple, you have to burn some incense, and you have to say Caesar is Lord. If you don't do that, you're not going to get work. So there you are. You have a wife and children. If you don't work, they don't eat. And your union rep is telling you, look, man, you don't even have to believe this stuff. Just say the words, burn the incense, it's no big deal. What are you going to do? What will you do? You've recently converted to Christianity, and you know that it's idolatry to say anyone else is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord alone. What 
will you do? So you tell yourself, I need to pray about this. I want to go talk to the elders of my church and my small group. I'm so confused. I don't want to lose my job. I want to be a good husband. Doesn't Jesus also say to provide for your family? And if you don't, you're worse than an infidel. So you go on Sunday. You show up to the house church. It's small. It's underground. It's quiet. And you're meeting at Polycarp's house. And Polycarp, he's... He's so wise. He's probably going to be the next pastor of our church, and he's opened up his home. He's hospitable. So you make your way to him, and, and you find a seat on the floor next to him and cross your legs. And as part of the worship, you, you sing quietly because you don't want the authorities to hear. And together, you recite the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, all of Your church together says this, you and Polycarp sitting next to each other, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And this strikes you as you sit there. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you start to tear up because this is exactly what you're facing. Is he Lord or is Caesar Lord? Is he Lord or is, is, is my relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend Lord? Is he Lord or, or, or is my work Lord? And one of the elders gets up and says, I have a word from the Apostle John. You're sitting there next to Polycarp, cross-legged, and, and your, your ears perk up because you had heard in the past that, that John has gotten in trouble for preaching the gospel. Cameron preached that to us a few weeks ago. He was exiled. His sentence was handed down, the elder tells you, and he had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And your, your elder says, please pray for him. The rumor is that he got boiled and dumped there, and we don't really know how he's doing, but praise God, we have a letter from him this morning. And your heart, my heart, has been encouraged by the singing as you have have sung next to Polycarp, and your heart has grown more courageous by reciting the Christ hymn that Paul wrote, and now you get to hear from the Apostle John. And what surprises you, though, as you sit there and listen next to Polycarp, is that the letter, though, written down by John is actually from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is writing a letter to your church. And the tears begin to flow down your face because you've been confused and you've been wondering what is going to happen what should you do about your job and how how am I going to survive how am I going to provide for my family and it feels as if Jesus is showing up with a message just for you 
And you listen with excitement as the elder reads his testimony of, of Jesus Christ to John. It promises a blessing for simply reading the prophecy out loud. And blessed are those who hear it and keep it. And you say to yourself, I want that blessing. And John writes with much pastoral wisdom and courage and gentleness, but he has been exiled. And he writes to you, I am a brother and a partner in your tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And this is exactly what you needed to hear this morning. You are not alone. You have been going through tribulation. You are, you're on the brink of losing your job. Your family could go hungry, but you have a brother and a partner in tribulation. And more than that, you have an older brother, Jesus Christ, that has already gone through tribulation and has come to life again. And Jesus has a message to your church. He has a message to Smyrna. And friends, this is true every Sunday when, when we enter into church and hear the gospel preached. Jesus' preferred place is in the middle of his churches, in the middle of the lampstands, in the, in, the, in the middle of us. He chooses to be with his church, though they are imperfect and sinful, and the way he dwells with them is through his word. When the gospel is preached, Jesus is, is moving among the pews, bending your wills and my will to himself. He dwells as the word is preached, and as he is seen, he gives his people courage to face the suffering that will come. What will he say about us? What will he say about Smyrna? And that's what you're wondering as you sit there. The message to the church of Smyrna is the only letter that has nothing bad to say about a church in the seven letters, the only one. And this, this must show something about how Jesus views the church that suffers, the church that the world would call poor. He views as rich. So here's the message to your little church. You're sitting there next to Polycarp, and he says, you have suffered. You're going to suffer more, so be fearless. Do not fear and be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. Be fearless and faithful. You're going to have to build your life on something. You're going to have to build your life on, uh, you're going to have to know something in particular. You will not endure persecution if you don't know some things. And what you need to know, there's three things you need to know, and one thing you need to believe. Fearless and faithful, when trials come, you need to know The first thing you need to know is who has called you to the suffering. And John tells us in, John tells the church at Smyrna exactly who he is. Jesus writing, he says, John write to the, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life again. The one who is there at the beginning and who will be there at the end. He's the first and the last. He has all of time and eternity in his hands. Everything, including your suffering and the persecution of the church, is under his control. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. He was there before you were born. He will be there after you die. So he is right there with you in the middle of your suffering. 
in the middle of your persecution. And not only that, he's not only the first and the last, he's the one that died and came to life. You have to know him. He, he entered into your suffering. The, the one who is above time stepped into time. The Son of God took on flesh and died for the sins of the world, for your sins, my sins. But he did not stay dead. He came back to life. He came to life. So if you're going to be fearless and faithful in trials, you need to know him, the eternal God, the God-man, the life-giver, the death-conqueror, the sin-eater, the serpent-crusher. You need to know him, and you need to know that he has called you to the suffering. But not only that, and maybe primary to that, it's not so much about you knowing him as it is about him knowing you. You need to know that he knows you. And what he knows about you is true. He, you need to know that he knows you. What, what he, he knows about you is true. What he says about you is true. He sees you and and knows you. He is the first and the last. He's the one that died and came back to life. In verse 9, he says, I know you. I know you. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know they slander you. I know they lie about you. I know your poverty. I know your tribulation, but you are rich. And Jesus is telling them that if they're going to endure persecution with fearlessness and faithfulness, they're going to have to know him, and they're going to have to know that he knows them. He knows them. Friends, maybe we are tempted to believe things that are not true about ourselves. Maybe you are tempted, like me, through the week to, to believe the wrong things about yourself. Maybe you, ha you do have poor self-talk in your head, and you think of yourself as a loser, and and the worst sinner that has ever lived, and you don't know how Jesus could love you, but, but Jesus knows you. Maybe you believe the, the lies of the, the culture that tell us that we're, we're, we're poor when we're actually rich. Maybe you believe wrong things that you tell about yourself and you need to preach the gospel to yourself and, and say the right things like you are, are, are a born-again son or daughter of God who has been blood-bought, has been secured, and is an heir of Christ. But maybe you're also tempted to believe the lies of, of the devil, of the culture, uh, uh, of, of the religious people who slander you. But Jesus has a different definition of poor. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is telling the church of Smyrna, and he's telling you that though you have no earthly goods or elite education, you are re really rich in spiritual goods. 
We who are tempted to believe, we are so tempted to believe the world's definition about things. We are, we, we are tempted to believe the world's definition about us and, and what we should be and, and what we should pursue and what it actually means to be rich and influential. What are you believing about success? What do you believe about uh, personal success and, and success in your career? What do you believe? Do you believe the world's definitions or Jesus' definitions? And I, I never want personal examples to take precedence in this, but I have recently come out of a pretty dark time in my life. And it's due to a lot of different things, uh, seasonal stuff going on. And, and, uh, but, but one of the things that I've had to deal with is this view of success. What does it mean to be successful in your life? And I've been believing lies about, about what success actually means, even for this church. Believing lies about what a successful church actually looks like, what, what it looks like to be um, to be a, a, a church that's flourishing. And God, in Mexico, I think met with me, mostly with, you know, sunshine. That was really helpful. It's amazing how your attitude can change when you're basking in the sun for five days. But also, I, I was reading in my personal devotions and uh, came across the story of, of Joseph. And, you know, Joseph, he, he gets sent off to prison by his own brothers, and time after time, the Lord's definition of success is Joseph was successful while he was in prison. Joseph was successful while he was sent away to be a slave. Joseph was successful. I just thought, I, I am having the wrong view of what success is. Can I, can I view being in prison as success? Can, can, I, can I view uh, what God wants to do in, in, in this church and in this place as success. Can we see faithfulness and, and, and preaching the gospel and, and loving each other and, and having a family as success? Are we going to let the world or our, our own definitions of success overturn it? Jesus said, you're poor. I know your poverty. But you're actually rich. It made me so thankful for you guys, for this church who, who loves the word, who is excited about being with each other on, on Sundays and during the week to see you guys hang around and, and me to be wondering, when am I going to be able to turn the lights off and go home? Because you're sitting around talking to each other and loving each other. I love that. That's success. You said, I know your poverty, but... You're rich. You are rich in spiritual goods. So, so keep on. Keep on going. What, what do you define as success? Has the world's definition of success shaped you? Maybe it's shaping how many hours you work. It's shaping the career you've chosen or the major you've chosen or, or how much you study, how much time you put into certain relationships. God knows. God, God knows your tribulation and your poverty. So 
dear friend. Let him define what success is. Persecution, let it come if it may. Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the world's definition. Don't, don't worry about those who even slander you, these, these Jews, these Jews who are actually a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue, a, a gathering of the slanderer. They are lying about these people to get them, to put them in prison. And, and Jesus says, I know them. Their definition about you is not true. Mine is. You need to know him. You need to know that he has called you to this suffering. And you need to know that he knows you. The last thing you need to know is that you must know that this suffering will not last forever. This suffering will not last forever. He says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, you're sitting there next to Polycarp, and John's words ring in your ears. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you in prison. He doesn't say who, he just says some of you are going to be thrown into prison and tested for 10 days. And friends, God is sovereign. And he is going to use this evil of the devil for good. Back to the Joseph story. You, you remember sitting as you sat by Polycarp looking at the elder reading these words, and your mind is drawn back to when Polycarp gave a sermon on Joseph being sent into Egypt by his brothers, sold into slavery, but ends up saving the world. He told his brothers at the end of his life as they were afraid, he says, do not be afraid. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And you remember the words of the Apostle Paul, all things work together for good to them who love you and have been called according to his purpose. So now you start to take courage again because you know that though you may lose your job, God is testing your faith so it will be pure like gold. Nothing purifies like the trials by fire. And he only tests those he loves. So take courage, dear friend. Remember, the testing is limited. He says for 10 days. That could be literal or it could be figurative, but 10 days, it's, it's, this, it's this time of testing that is under God's control and he's, he's limited how much you will go through. So whatever suffer you're going through now, it will not last forever. It will not last forever. Your tribulation, those a normal part of the Christian life, does not last forever. There's a limit to it. You'll know him. Know that he knows you. And know that your suffering will not last forever. God has it under control. It's in his timing. And he will provide everything you need through the suffering. Those are the three things you need to know. And one thing you need to believe. Lastly, the one thing you need to believe. Even if you die for believing in Jesus, death is the doorway to eternal life. You won't die the second death if you are trusting Jesus alone for salvation, to save you from your sins and from his wrath. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Almost certainly that is a reference to eternal life. The crown of life just means that you are going to live forever in his presence. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So even if you have to die, you will conquer. Well, what does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to, to, to conquer as God's people? Well, Revelation 12, 11 tells us. In Revelation 12, it, it tells us that Satan is thrown down to earth and, and, and Christ and his people are conquering him. And, and, it, and it says in verse 11, and they have conquered him. They've overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You will not experience the second death if you are a Christian, if you're believing and trusting Christ alone. You will conquer, you, you, you will uh, receive the crown of life. It's like, a, uh, it's like an Olympic award. That's the, that's the view here. And he said, you will receive that. You will not be hurt by the second death because you have conquered by the blood of the lamb. Jesus has conquered it for you. He's, he's gone in your place. He stepped in your place and took the wrath of God for you and, and rose again. So if you're believing in Jesus, you will never suffer the second death. Friends, but hell is a real place. The second death is a reality. For those who do not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, they will be hurt by the second death. That's why we want to take the good news to as many people as we can, to our friends and neighbors, to the college campus, and, and to our workplaces. Because people are going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 is, is certain of this, makes us certain of this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in it, written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a real place. And we shouldn't let people who use it as a cuss word uh, desensitize us to the reality that there's, there is a punishment for those who will not turn to Christ and bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord. But friends, that second death, death and hell has been conquered by the one that has the keys of death and hell. He holds the keys. The keys are, 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 are for those who can open and shut. He has the authority to open and shut it. And for anyone who turns to Christ, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you will turn to Christ and trust him alone, his, his death and resurrection and ascension alone for your salvation, you will have eternal life and you will never be hurt by the second death. And Jesus says, be faithful to the end. Be faithful to the end. Trust in me to the end. What happens if you're not faithful to the end? What happens if, you know, you die 
having, what happens if you have denied Christ before you die? If you, have, if you never repent and turn to Christ, you will suffer the second death. But even deniers like Peter, who denied Jesus on the day of his death, he restores them, comforts them. He, he restores them and, and sends them out to do ministry through, because his gospel is so big, because he has the keys of death and hell. Friend, I just want to tell you today, if you have not trusted Christ, trust him. If you have someone on, on, on your mind that you, you know that is not trusting Christ, I just pray for them, that they would turn to him. Tell them the good news again and invite them to trust Christ alone. It is a pain to know that people don't know Jesus. Tur- turn them to the only one that can do anything about it. And dear friend, after this letter is read, you and Polycarp, and pray together, and you both ask Christ to please help. Please help us follow Jesus no matter what. And you decide, you decide on that day that you are going to tell the union leader that you will not burn incense or call Caesar Lord because Jesus is Lord. And if it costs you your job, so be it. So you show up to work on Monday, and your union leader, he has a job for you. And he seems to have forgotten about last week, and, and you thank God, and you say, God, thank you for answering my prayers. And, and when you get home, you tell your wife, yeah, I just, this is what God has done. He spared my job, and I don't have to burn incense to Caesar, and, and, and you're thanking him, and you share the good news with her, but she shares the bad news with you. And Polycarp has been arrested. He's been arrested for not calling Caesar Lord. The pro-council has threatened him, facing the lions. And Polycarp, who had become the bishop of Smyrna, actually did face this. Polycarp was imprisoned, and he was under the sentence of, uh, of death. And, and Polycarp, in the face of the Roman government, he says, it's okay. Jesus promised me that I will not be hurt by the second death. Do what you have to do. He didn't rebel against the government. He, he, he didn't cause an insurrection. He just said, I'm not going to call Caesar Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the proconsul says, fine, we'll burn you alive then. Just revile Jesus. All you have to do is burn some incense and say that Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, I have served Jesus 86 years. And he has only done good to me. How can I deny the one who has saved me? Now, how do you get that kind of fearlessness and faithfulness? It's by knowing him, the eternal God who gave his life for you and came back from the dead. It's by knowing that he knows you. It's by knowing that suffering will not last forever. And it's by believing you will live forever. Let's pray. On this Sunday where we do not have communion. I want to give you some extra time to to talk to the Lord and respond to him. And as you pray, maybe, I don't know what God is doing in your heart. Maybe he is convicting you of sin, or maybe he's assuring you that he loves you. Just take some time to respond to him. Pray to him without distraction.